Welcome to episode 18 of Refined by Fire podcast. Refined by Fire, as always, is a Brothers in Battle media production and brought to you by our friends at Elkhart Brass. Since it's on the top of my mind and I had my hands on one recently, I wanted to talk about the Elkhart standpipe bag that they offer. Uh, just a, a good essentials kit uh, for your for your standpipe kit on your engine, uh, potentially on your truck if you carry them there as well, which some folks do. Um, but it's just a it's a great bag. It's got a pressure gauge, an elbow, a gate valve, a couple of spanner wrenches in there, just kind of the bare bones essentials that you need to get a standpipe into operation. I like that they offer it as a kit. And then you know what I really like is that bag too. We're always like chasing these custom made bags, at least on my job for, for different things. Um, I love that we don't have to go get another thing custom made. It's specifically fit for all this equipment. There's not a bunch of junk sliding around in there. It's not going to, you know, wear out super quick. It's a really sturdy, durable bag. So, um, check that out at elkartbrass.com. Check out that, uh, standpipe bag. And if you're looking to upgrade, if you're looking to add bags, if you're like me, you're on a small department, you're getting some increase in the amount of standpipes in your area and you have to put these on your rigs for the first time, this is a really great opportunity, a really good product to do that with. My guest for episode 18 is Shannon Stone, Battalion Chief for Fort Walton Beach Fire Department in the Panhandle of Florida and soon to be Deputy Chief of Operations at Midway Fire District, which is uh, next door there. Shannon is a 29-year veteran of the fire service, having served in every position from firefighter to battalion chief there at Fort Walton Beach. Um, he is involved in a lot of the work that Kurt Isaacson's doing down there with County Fire Tactics. He's a founder of 850 Firemen and uh, a renowned speaker. I got to hear Shannon speak in 2017 at the Firemanship Conference and I found his talk, Nuggets from the Right Seat, to be incredibly impactful and full of wisdom. And this talk is, is much the same. Uh, Chief Stone is just dripping with uh, really actionable wisdom and advice for leaders. So whether you are first year on the job, uh, you're on a promotional list, or you've been in some sort of formal leadership uh, for decades, there's something in this talk for you, something very actionable. Um, really appreciate Chief Stone coming on because he just absolutely crushed it. So uh, without any further interruption from me, please enjoy this talk with Chief Shannon Stone. Okay, welcome back to the Refined by Fire podcast. Today I'm joined by Chief Shannon Stone. Chief, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited uh, to talk with you. I always try to solicit um, ideas from the listeners and people they want to hear to hear from. And uh, you're a guy whose name has constantly come up. And additionally, uh, you gave one of one of the best lectures I've ever heard a couple of years ago. And, and we'll get into that a little later. So uh, it was a no brainer. And I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, man, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you thinking about me, man. It's pretty cool. You've had some pretty amazing people on your podcast. You guys are doing great things. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Well, uh, I guess let's let's uh, dive into this. I recently saw news that you're taking on some new challenges in uh, in a new place. So so tell me about what's going on with you right now. 
So I'm uh, eligible for retirement at the uh, department I'm at, which is the city of Fulton Beach. It's a uh, smaller, older city here in the panhandle of Florida. And, uh, you know, I'm really fortunate that we've got a great pension and um, I can uh, I can leave if I choose to. And I've got a great opportunity in the next county over, which is closer to where I live at. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, I've been hired on as the operations chief to oversee operations and continue to build a culture over there. Um uh, very much like what we have where I work and, and very much in line with what uh, you and I and many others in the fire service think the fire service should be. Uh, I've got a history with this fire department because I've uh, been with them for over 10 years um, instructing uh, within a fire academy and actually filled in as a battalion chief uh, for a temporary uh, period for about 12 months. So I knew exactly what I was getting into and uh, managed just a solid group of guys over there. Um, it's kind of like a clean slate or growing. Uh, the resources are there. It's a fire district. The board wants it. The fire chief wants it. He's a great leader. So, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the next step in my career, and I, I didn't ever think I would I would do something like this. But, uh, but yeah, man, I'm, uh, I'm jumping into something different after 30 years of being in pretty much in the same city. So I'm excited. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so you, you're currently a battalion chief, right? Yes. And how long have you served as a battalion chief at Fort Walton Beach? Uh, 11 years now. Okay. Um, so you're, you're moving into an administrative position. So what was that decision-making process like for you? Because I know, you know, this is something that a lot of guys go through as they, um, you know, start to ha- spend a lot of time in the same seat, regardless of what that seat is. Um, they, they want to find ways to have more influence on their department. Uh, they consider that administrative level management position. So what was the decision-making process like for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, uh, you know, like I said earlier, I didn't think I would ever be in this position, but I, there was, you know, there's, there's several things that kind of attracted me to it, you know, in this particular department. Uh, you know, one, the fire chief is, uh, you know, very supportive, is, is very well respected uh, and is a good leader, you know, so the opportunity to, to get to work with somebody like that was exciting. The other thing is it's a young department and they have a culture there, a good foundation to build on. I'm, I'm not having to step into an organization and change decades of, uh, of uh, complacent behavior. Um, you know, and the third probably is the people. Man, they've got just a great solid group of, uh, of uh, young guys over there um, that, that I think, you know, want to continue to build. So uh, something that probably 10 years ago I wouldn't have considered and now, you know, I'm 49 years, just turned 49 years old. And uh, the, uh, the opportunity to kind of go over there and to be a part of building a department uh, and building a culture um, is pretty exciting, you know. Uh, so, you know, it, it's going to be a big transition because I'm going to 40 hours a week, uh, you know, but uh, the chief's giving me free reign to be heavily engaged in the operations, um, which is right up my alley anyways. That's what I've always done. That's what I want to continue to do. So. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm excited about it. I'm a little, I'm a little nervous on one end because the expectations are much greater, I think from the top to the bottom, but, uh, another end I'm excited for, for, uh, for a challenge. Really cool. Well, I hope that's helpful to some people who are uh, thinking about something like that, uh, in their own careers. You mentioned the people there, uh, you're in the, the panhandle of Florida and you know, there's a lot of these maybe not even a lot. There are several kind of small pockets, uh, it seems to me, throughout the country where there are just a disproportionate number of highly engaged firefighters. And, and the Florida panhandle kind of seems to be one such area. So um, 
I guess, first of all, is, is my observation correct that, that it is maybe a higher percentage of really engaged firefighters? And then if so, why is that, do you think? You know, uh, I think your observation is correct. I, I think we do have a, a larger number, um, you know, and have an opportunity the last 10 years to kind of travel across the country and teach. It's given me perspective and, quite honestly, a better appreciation for what we have here in the Panhandle. Why is it like that? You know, I mean, it's the people, man. It's it's people like Kurt Isaacson and a handful of other guys here in the Panhandle that you know that strive to make the job better. And and you know as well as I do, it can be contagious. You know, and uh, and and you know, I think probably over the last twenty years, uh, we've had a large group of guys um, that believe, you know, in the mission. They believe in, you know, putting uh, other people before them. And I can say, at least in my career, spanning almost thirty years. From the time I came into the time now, we've definitely seen a big shift here in the panhandle um, to where, you know, we can, you know, have uh, training events and we have a, a bunch of people that show up. Unlike a lot of other times it happens in other places, it's not necessarily the case. And I think it speaks to the culture uh, that we kind of have here in the panhandle. So, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I, I think we've got a large number um, and I think it has to do with uh uh, a lot of the guys getting outside their bubble, seeing how the fire service is and what it should be. And then, you know, loving the job, man. They just love the job and they want to make it better and they share it one person at a time. And what started, it seemed to be a small amount almost 30 years ago, ago is, uh, is a large amount now, you know, looking back over the span of my career. Sounds like a cool place. <laughs> um, you know, I, and I do think, I think my area is, is kind of like that and it's a, it's a cool thing to be a part of. So speaking of the panhandle, uh, I wanted to ask you about 850 Firemen, uh, which is something, if I'm not mistaken, you and your brother were part of kind of getting off the ground out there. And so can you, can you talk to me a little bit about what 850 Firemen is, was, what it's up to, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, it started out, you know, uh, you mentioned I got a brother. I got a younger brother. He uh, He's actually promoting the battalion chief here. Uh, here actually just got promoted last week. Um, and he, he works at the same department I do. Uh, he's been on the job about 18 years, and he and I were coming back from the Orlando Fire Conference, I want to say probably seven, eight years ago. And we had talked about it over the year or two leading up to we wanted to do something to kind of represent the panhandle because we feel there's a lot of talented guys and gals that work in this area, and, and uh, the panhandle is not the first part of Florida you typically think of when you think of the state of Florida. You think of Disney World and Miami. So we wanted to do something on social media that kind of just gave a platform uh, for the talented people uh, that live in this area. And um, and really, we started out as just something kind of fun. In fact, we were trying to come up with a name for it years ago, and we took my brother's email, which was 850-FIREMAN. We said, man, that's perfect. You know, it represents the panhandle. You know, and really, all we've done with it since then and we continue to do is just, is just uh, try to share positive things and encouraging things, training uh, and so forth, and, uh, and give some pride to those that live here, uh, you know, in the 850 and the panhandle. Um, that's really it, man. It's, it's, it's nothing any, any bigger than that. It's just something that we have fun with. And the more we've done it, the more popular I think it's gotten because it, uh, it gives the, the guys and the gals a sense of pride of this part of the panhandle of Florida. And, and quite honestly, I think it's, this part's got a lot of talented firemen and it's a great place to live. It's probably one of the best places in the country, you know, to, to live and raise a family. So that's it, man. We're just doing it for fun and and we're still kind of doing it. And, uh, we don't plan on doing a whole lot more with it other than just continuing to spread the word, you know? 
Yeah, I like it. I think uh, from the outside looking in, uh, I, I like that you mentioned, you know, you're always trying to share something positive. That, that is not always uh, the case with uh, with different, you know, different groups or different pages or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I really encourage everyone to just kind of check out A50 Firemen on YouTube or uh, Facebook and just always sharing good information, good opportunities for uh, for classes, stuff like that. And you guys have a great logo, man. You got some cool hats. So I don't know if there's anywhere that, that people can get those, but they should try that. That's, that's pretty legit. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. All right. Well, I want to get into one of the, one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you was I saw your lecture in Portland at the firemanship conference in, in 2017. Actually I saw about 70% of your lecture and I got, I got pulled aside and, and had to have a, a conversation about the the hot classes the next day and I've never been so upset to to miss part of a lecture because I was I was absolutely just enthralled and, and taking tons of notes so I, I wanted to kind of talk to you about that that talk it was called nuggets from the right seat and uh, I've got some notes here and I hope you don't mind is it cool if we just kind of like go through my notes I want to ask you questions about what some of the things mean to you um, and then maybe if you can give you know, a story or two about like how you, how you came to that realization. Um, I think that'd be super helpful for everyone listening. Yeah, man. Absolutely. man. I appreciate the kind words too. That was probably uh well, it wasn't probably it's the best, uh, event or conference I've spoken at. It was just amazing on that stage out in Portland, man. They amazing things out there. So yeah, absolutely, man. I'm wide open. Awesome. So I'm just going through my notes here. And the first thing I highlighted uh, was something you said, uh, and, it, and it says, lead through influence, not authority. And I'm, I'm curious uh, what exactly that means to you. And then like how uh, you have found success leading through influence rather than authority. It's a good question. You know, I, I put in the most basic terms. You ever worked for that guy or that gal that you just want to work for? You want to please? Yep. Absolutely. That's, that's- Basically, I mean, there's more to it, but that's basically it. You know, you want to, and you know, that doesn't happen overnight, right? It's it's created through uh, a lot of time and work and trust and the way you conduct yourself at work, and quite honestly, the way you conduct yourself away from work. Um, you know, people want to follow people with the same or similar value systems. They want to follow people that are going to learn from and that they feel that has, uh, you know, something to offer. You know, and and building that over a period of time through our actions uh, at the firehouse, um, through the example that we set. Um, and through our actions off duty and the type of life that we live, you know, we're making mistakes, taking ownership, setting an example, getting back on track because life happens and, and we've all been there. Um, you know, you, you hope to create that influence to where, you know, the people are wanting to um, do things because you asked them to do it, not because you told them to do it. You know, we can always revert back to authority, right? You know, you're given that with your bugles. And, and, uh, but uh, rarely, if ever, does authority ever bring the best out in somebody. You know, you want to be that guy or that gal that, you know, they're looking forward to going to work with and they want to do everything uh, to please you. And I've been lucky enough, quite honestly, in my career to work for a couple of officers like that, that, you know, when they set their expectations, I didn't just want to meet their expectations. I wanted to exceed them. Like I wanted to impress them, you know, um, and I've always aspired to try to be that type of boss, you know, and it revolves around a lot of things, putting your people first, servant leadership, you know, understanding that this is much greater than a job and it's not about me it's about them you know so yeah man um you know and that's it, it you know i could talk all day long about it but that's what it boils down to is you know wanting to follow somebody uh because you believe in what they're doing personally and professionally and it, it'll bring the best out in somebody it brings the passion out in somebody which is what's going to make a difference when we're out there in the streets doing the difficult things that firemen have to do 
Yeah, my experience says that's that's absolutely true. Uh, next thing I highlighted in, in in the notes, it's it's bolded and underlined, and I want to thank my buddy Andrew Murtaugh in uh, in San Francisco because he actually shared his notes with me as well. So I, I'm getting to combine our two notes, and um, because he was also a really big fan of of your talk here, he wrote down over communicate the why. First condition of influence is trustworthiness and let them know what's going on. So how have you found success over communicating the why and and has it ever been difficult? You know, it's, that's a great question. I'd, I'd kind of tell you a little side note to that. Uh, the, the first time I heard that was probably over 10 years ago. And I'd always been the type of guy, I believe in information and I believe in transparency and I believe the more that you share with your people – uh, generally, the more productive they're going to be and the more appreciative they're going to be. Um, but I sat in a class uh, given by a guy named Bob Murphy. Uh, coincidentally enough, Bob Murphy now is a fire commissioner at the fire department that I'm going to go to work for, Midway Fire District. So technically, he's at the top of the chain. And he worked for a group called the Studer Group, which which taught evidence-based leadership to healthcare facilities across the world. Uh, and in doing so, one of the things that he talked about and he strived to me was to talk about uh, the why, over-communicating the why. So you start thinking about over-communicating the why, and especially in the technology-driven era that we are with the, with the new young guys and gals coming up, um, it just made sense. And I think that sometimes we miss the boat on that, you know, because we focus so much on the technical stuff in the fire service and not so much the communications and leadership. And quite honestly, let's just face it, how to deal with people, man. Yes. And what I found over the years in the fire service, and I guess it just comes with age and wisdom if, if you're if you're actually paying attention throughout your career, is firefighters are very, very predictable, most of them, and their behavior. And one of them is over-communicating the why, and, 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 and really there's no downside to it. Um, at, at a bare minimum, they're going to hopefully appreciate and value that you're taking the extra time sharing things with them. And some people misinterpret it. I don't mean that every single time you're going to sit down. And you're going to spend 5, 10, 15 minutes going over stuff. But, you know, it's common sense. You know, if you're, if you, if you're a halfway decent leader, you're going to know when you're going to need to spend that extra time and over-communicating the why. So they understand what they're doing and they buy off on why you're doing it, right? So, uh, yeah, you know, and it's directly related to your first condition of influence, which is trustworthiness. If you cannot build trust, which really ties in all three conditions of influence, then uh, you're not going to be able to create that influence and you're not going to create that followership of people wanting to exceed your expectations, which all of it translates to what we're ultimately trying to do. And that's to be the very best on the streets on somebody's worst day. Have you ever worked for, for leadership who, who found it difficult or, or not palatable to have to explain everything? And if so, you, you know, what was that experience like? And, and I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, is sometimes with some leaders, it feels like, um, you know, from leadership, particularly administrative leadership, it feels like sometimes there's almost a refusal to, to communicate the why just because they don't have to and they don't have to take the time. So specifically, like as you move to a managerial position, um, how, do, how does that trickle down? from the top brass, do you think? How does that trickle down from the four and five bugle folks down to the folks at the line? Well, you know, I, again, I think human behavior is very predictable. You know, I mean, if you don't over-communicate the why and you don't invest in your people by communicating more with them, don't be surprised when it's a little bit more challenging. Conversely, you know, going into this new position that I'm going in, I'm going to do the opposite and do what I've done in my battalion and I'm going to do it department-wide. And that's that I'm going to make sure 
that the information is out there and provide as much uh, transparency so that I have the buy-in. I start uh, building the trust. You know, if I've worked for, to answer your question on the other end, I've worked for bosses that have, you know, basically uh, didn't necessarily believe in it, do as I say type deal. Um, you know, and I've learned, I think more, quite honestly, like I, most people probably listening to this would agree. I've learned more from the, uh, not so good bosses, bad bosses, doesn't make them bad people. You know, you can, you know, you can be a good person and be a shitty leader. It happens all the time in the American fire service. Absolutely. You know, but, but I've learned a tremendous amount of sitting back and observing and watching the end results of that. And the two types of bosses that I've run across, one are the old school bosses that they were just raised that way. You know, I'm kind of on the cusp. I came into the job in 1990. You know, I came on the cusp of do as you say because you're supposed to do it and don't ask questions to now we're feeding a lot of information. So you got a lot of the guys that came up in the 70s, you know, in the 80s and stuff. That's just the way they conducted business. It's kind of like the way the society was. Um, the other side is what I've seen on the newer bosses, you know, less than 20 years. A lot of times uh, I've seen ones that are insecure in their ability to lead. Um, a lot of times they revert back to do as I say type. So. I guess the takeaway for me is I've, I've observed it all, and I think it's very predictable. Um, I think as a boss, whether it's at a company level or whether it's a battalion or in my new position as the operations chief of a fire department, if I conduct business in such a way and I set those same expectations for my battalions and I expect it to go all the way down the line, the likelihood of that happening is much greater. I'm not going to sit here and say it's going to happen all the way down because people are human, you know, but the likelihood of that is, is they're going to mimic the same behavior, hopefully. Um, Conversely, if I didn't do it, then I could expect to have a similar outcome at the very bottom, you know, because it's going from the top to the bottom in the opposite direction, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. Thank you. Question a little bit, I guess. Definitely. Thank you for walking us through that. So we talked about the first condition of influence. What are the the other two conditions of influence? Uh, Again, uh, working off this idea that we want to lead through influence and not authority. Um, the second condition of influence is expertise, and the third is attractiveness. You know, there's a lot of ways to lead. It's just, for me, I found those three topics seem to always bubble to the top, right? You got to have trust, hands down. You got to trust them. There's two different types of trust. There's, there's the personal inside the firehouse trust, right? And then there's a the trust on the fire ground that you can trust and follow, which ties into your second condition of influence, expertise, right? Which is perhaps the most critical one. And people say, well, why is that? Well, it's just an opinion. But I would say because the fact that when things get bad, they got to follow you. They got to trust what you're saying because we take people into some very, very bad situations and we're responsible for taking care of them and leading them out. The third condition is, is your value system, right? You know, if, if, if I don't, you know, have the same value system or something similar, uh, it's going to be very difficult to even create your first condition of influence, which is trustworthiness. The good news with that is that uh, I, most people in the fire service, the vast majority of them were cut from the same mold. So it's almost, it's almost a given a lot of times, you know, uh, and, and doing all this and leading uh, firemen is very much, I say this in my class, it's very much like raising children. To be quite honest with you, I'm, I'm going to give a little bit more slack to a 20-year-old than I am a 30-year-old. From 20 to 30, we learn a lot. 20, I look at it as you're still kind of in your adolescent age. I wouldn't have said this, obviously, in my 20s because I didn't figure this out until I got my shoulder. <laughs> but, I mean, you are if you think about it. I mean, we're, we're leading young men and young women, and we're, we're trying to make them better firefighters, and we're developing them into hopefully better people. When I look back over my career, you know, I, I learned as much or more from the firemen that I worked with from the time I was 20 to probably the time I was 35 than I did my parents. 
I mean, because I'm around these people all the time, you know, and they're the ones that snatched me up when I got sideways. They're the ones that had the long talks with me, you know, and they're the ones that hurt my feelings when when they needed to be hurt. So, um, so yeah, you know, they, all the all the conditions of influence kind of tie into each other, and there's more to them to that. But those three uh, conditions, trustworthiness, expertise, and uh, attractiveness, which is your value system, they always seem to bubble the top with me, at least in my experiences. That's so cool. I, th- I think that's just a really cool way to lay it out and um, a great guideline for anyone to follow. So thanks for sharing that. Appreciate it. Want to move down uh, to levels of expectations, uh, four levels of expectations. It runs through what your boss expects from you, what your firefighters expect from you, what you expect from yourself, and what you expect from your firefighters. How did you come to sort of assimilate that into these four levels. What was what was kind of the the learning you went over over the last 29 years that helped you to to establish these four levels? Well, it, you know, it, it goes back to working with good bosses and and, I, and I'll see if I can remember that quote correct, correctly that uh, we were just talking about when your boss's expectations exceed those of your own expectations, you have a problem or an opportunity. It's your choice. Copy. So for me personally, I crossed those roads uh, at an early age in my career, and I worked for a boss uh, that basically he laid it out. And you, you, honest to God, I mean, it was it was an opportunity to learn, or it, you were going to choose to make it a problem. Um, you know, I choose as, as as an opportunity to learn. You know, and I took that, and then when I got promoted to company officer at a very young age, 29 years old, which was the youngest in the history of my department at the time, still think it is. Not that it matters. Um, I thought I was ready, which I, I was to a certain extent, but I didn't realize how young I was. Um, that was after, let's see, about almost 10 years on the job. Um, so it was really early. So as I started trying to lead and, and develop my own leadership style, I found out a lot of times that uh, we were making small mistakes. So what I did is I just started jotting down on a piece of paper and I was giving them to my guys. It could be something as simple as uh, in-house firehouse expectations or maybe what we carried on an activated fire alarm because at the time we didn't have really strict uh, seat assignment guidelines. And then before you knew it, it just created like this running document. I was like, hey, guys, take this, man, so that we're on the same page. They appreciated it because they didn't have to guess what I wanted. You know, I gave them a clear roadmap and it eventually evolved into a set of expectations that I provided to my people. And as I started building and dissecting it, I found these common threads as well. You know, uh, you got to set your own personal uh, expectations. And those were largely built off of the people that I had learned from, the examples that were set for me by the older firefighters and the officers that I worked with. You know, and of course, understanding exactly personally and professionally what your people want, I think, is a very big deal. Uh, You know, and then clearly laying out your expectations for your people in writing. There's a difference between telling your people and putting it in writing. The difference is, is that when it's in writing, they can reference back. If you tell them, then you have to deal with the communication, which there's always a communication drop and people are going to forget. So it's, it's a really simple concept. Over the years, uh, I've used for probably close to 20 years. In fact, if you were to come into my department, you're hard-pressed to find a company officer does not have written expectations for his people. Just simply because uh, we found that it works works really, really well. And I, I tell people all the time, as a new officer, you got to understand your expectations are going to evolve. Now, they're going to evolve because you're going to gain experience. You're going to gain, hopefully, knowledge and wisdom from those around you. You know, And then when you hit about your four or five-year mark as a new officer, you really kind of start getting your groove. You've dealt with a lot of people issues. You've hopefully caught some good jobs. You've gained some experience. 
So it's not uncommon for it to for them to actually evolve as you become a, a tenured officer. But uh, you know, I guess the biggest takeaway is laying expectations in writing for your people. Following up with those expectations to your own personal example, you can't say one thing and do something else. Uh, if you do that, they work out really, really well. And, and you're seeing a lot in the fire service, right? Ten years ago, people didn't talk about it. It's crazy. It's a communication issue. They weren't talking about it. Now, quite honestly, it's becoming more uncommon to not hear people lecture on leadership and not talk about writing your expectations down. Yeah, it does seem to be um, becoming fairly universal. Now, I think the level of, of how well those expectations are written uh, varies. Uh, I've got a note here under what you expect from your firefighters that says you have to have the nerve. Um, talk to me about nerve as a company officer. Well, you, you know, the way I view it is you got to have nerve in two different places. And the nerve basically meaning that you have to have uh, stand up and do the uncomfortable thing of addressing issues. And that's in the firehouse and outside the firehouse. So as an example of expectations, I had a, a, a captain that I worked for many years. Uh, he promoted a battalion and then not too long after I promoted to uh, a captain, um, I was fortunate enough to get put on his ship. And I, so I've worked with this guy for collectively probably 16, 17 years. And, and learned a tremendous amount. He was really well known for his operations, but he was the type of guy that if we went to a roof or something, I have a, a picture in my presentation where we went to a roof, roof on a small house fire and we we're coming off the roof. He's the type of guy, if we did something wrong, that he, he wouldn't wait a shift later, a week later, a month later, or passively pass something. He would pull you aside. He'd very directly, bluntly, politely, professionally say, hey guys, this is what we did. Here's what we did wrong. Here's what's going to happen if we do it again, and here's what we need to do from this point forward. And then he provided the mentoring and the training and the follow-up, following up from that. That's tough to do, man. It's tough. It's tough to. It's tough to talk to people about performance issues, and it's tough to talk to people people about behavioral issues. And as a leader and as a boss, you have to have the nerve to do it. And what a lot of people confuse is, well, if I'm a, if, you know, I don't want to come across as that guy. I don't want to be a jerk about it. You don't have to be a jerk about it. It's amazing what being nice can can do. You can be nice. And be forward and firm at the same time. The thing that we kind of miss a lot on having the nerve is we have to follow up and set our people up for success. And how do we do that? Then if it's a training issue, we provide the training. We take ownership. We fix it with them. We put them before ourselves. If it's a mentoring issue because we're having some personal issues, which, hey, it's life, man. It's going to happen. You know, uh, we need to help provide that individual with some mentoring. And that mentoring could be something as simple as sitting down and having regular conversations with them. It's one thing that I take as a compliment that I've been told many a times that I didn't think much about it until I got later in my career is how much I sit and talk to my people and how much they appreciate it. You know what I'm doing, man? I'm mimicking the behavior that I was exposed to. It worked. People did it with me and I'm doing it with, with other people, you know, and uh, um, yeah, so I mean, there, there you kind of have it. So uh, looking back to the, the quote that you shared about when your boss's expectations exceed your own, um, there's my next note is that, that your standards or expectations or one's standards and expectations for themselves sh should exceed the standards or expectations uh, that the department holds. Um, and, and I've got underlined here a common challenge when striving for excellence. So how have you found the ability to hold yourself accountable to those higher expectations, when when there's a minimum expectation that you could that you could fall back to, and no one's going to say anything. <laughs> Good question, man. It's tough. It's tough. I do things like what we're doing right now, talking to you, 
talking to guys like you throughout the fire service. So I spent the first half of my career, I've always been heavily engaged in the fire department. I'm a second generation fireman. I grew up in a firehouse. I have a brother that's uh, on the job. My wife's uh, grandfather and great grandfather were both firemen. So, you know, it's, I grew up in the business. Uh, but I spent the first half of the, my career heavily involved in the union. Still to this day, I'm a card carrying member and I will be going into this new job because I believe that much in it. Um, but I spent a lot doing union stuff the first 10 years and I've spent 14 the last 15 heavily engaged in learning the job and traveling more now. And that's one of the things that's, that's kept me, uh, that's kept me motivated because I mean, I'm sure, you know, as, as well as anybody else, it, it can be challenging, you know, you you get into the rut, you face the same stuff, you feel like you're beating your head up against the wall. And for me, getting out and meeting people like you and others across the country and getting motivated through other people's passion, I tell people all the time, get outside your bubble, man. If you don't towards the end of your career, don't be surprised if you fall, you know, in that rut, you know. So, you know, I try to surround myself with, with like-minded people, you know, and I try to find that balance too because my life in the fire department is extremely important, but it's not the most important thing in my life. You know, my family and my friends, I mean, they're the ones that's going to be there when, when I tap out and, and I go home, you know, and that the fire department's going to move on and go to calls like I wasn't even there, you know. So really just putting yourself around those that, that, uh, that you know, help, help motivate you and, and eliminating uh, negative influences, which I think is very difficult. No matter how motivated you are, it's tough, man. It's just a life thing, you know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, it's not easy to do, but I certainly think it's doable. I've been doing it 29 years. I, I still love coming into work, even with all, all the BS that goes on with it. You know, it's a fantastic example to guys like me and, you know, I'm much earlier in my career and, and I know what the rut feels like and, um, see individuals like you 29 years on just, just grinding, super passionate. Um, but also uh, really passionate about their families. That's that's a really important example. So thanks for setting it for us. Um, moving on to my next highlight here, and you just mentioned mentoring. Uh, you talk about mentoring accountability. So so what's it mean, and what's it look like in action to you? Mentoring accountability is investing in your people. It's putting your people first. It's having a lot of those conversations. You know, so, you know, in my class, I talk about, you know, there's two forms of mentoring accountability. Don't ask me where I came up the name. I have no clue, to be honest with you. I just know I conduct a business a certain way as a company officer and as a battalion chief, as a leader for, blows me away when I think about it. I'm doing 21 years as an officer, which is, I don't seem that old, but I am, I guess. Uh, but, you know, mentoring accountability in two phases, inside the firehouse and then on the operations. And inside the firehouse, you know, it has a lot to do with when we make a mistake, we're going to go pull them aside, we're going to talk to them, we're going to fix it. So there's basically like four steps to it, you know. So you identify what the problem is with the individual. Uh, you tell them how it impacted the company, the department, your station. Um, you, you, uh, you lay out your expectations for them. This is what I expect from this point forward. You share with them what the consequences are going to be if they don't meet it. And this is where you got to have nerve, you know, especially if it's a significant issue and you know, it, whether it's a, you know, a formal writing up of discipline, which I would, you know, I don't prefer to use. And if you're leading right, I don't think you have to use it that often. Um, and then the last step is providing that coaching and that mentoring. So, right. You know, so you know, early on in my career, I use this example in my class. I don't think I, I told about it in Portland, but, you know, early in my career as a very young firefighter, a 19-year-old firefighter, I was late to work. And I had a lieutenant that did that. He basically sat me down. He says, man, you were late, you know, and, 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 you know, you had to have somebody that held over. They couldn't get their kids, you know, and, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, I expect you to be on time. And my idea on time is 45 minutes early to get pass on. And, 
And if you don't, I'm going to write your ass up next time. You know, scared the crap out of me. And then he sat back and said, hey, so what's going on with you, man? What happened? I didn't have a good reason. Didn't have a good excuse, to be honest with you. But he, in turn, gave me two good options, which had to do with wind-up clocks, which I'm sure maybe some of these new guys don't know what they are, but a wind-up. Yeah, that's old school. Yeah, it is. But, hey, you know what? It saved me. It saved me a couple times. You know, nice. I said, get a, get, a, get a clock with a battery backup and then put a wind-up clock and have it go off 15 minutes after, you know? And he provided that extra coaching and mentoring and training. And, you know, the thing about it is, is I valued it. You know, I felt like I owed that lieutenant something. You know, he took care of me and he showed me what I did wrong and he gave me ideas to fix it. So mentoring accountability in the firehouse like that, doing simple step processes, not just hammering somebody's ass because they do something wrong, you know. On the fire ground, it's real simple. I used to tell guys all the time and I still do. You get one mistake. That's it. You get one mistake. You know, once we make that one mistake, we own it and we fix it, period. You know, because that second mistake could be detrimental. It could be somebody getting hurt or, God forbid, somebody getting killed. And I've done it long enough to where I've seen both happen, you know. But what we miss the boat on that, too, is that we don't follow up as officers and provide that training. So I, I use several examples in my classes, uh, a couple of them extreme. But what I found is that when you start doing that and you conduct yourself in that type of behavior inside the firehouse and outside the firehouse on operations, guess what your firefighters start doing? They start doing the same thing. That's right. And, and we, you mentioned earlier about the why, like, you know, how important is the why? Well, th this ties directly into it. You know, everybody has their own sense of purpose. And when you have when you have purpose and you can share it with your people and they get it, motivation is found. And then it becomes bigger than them. It's not just about them wanting to do because of what Shannon said. It's like, no, that, that just kind of makes sense. This is why we're doing what we're doing, you know? So when we share the purpose, and that's another part of my class that I tell companies officers all the time, you want them to feel like they're doing something that's bigger than themselves. It's not a job, man. It's, it's when you come in, you're going to have that opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life, you know? And it's, it's important, you know? So everybody has their own. You know, I've always told them mission, you know, mission them us. The mission first. The citizen comes before them, but the us part is when we start talking about mentoring accountability. If we don't take care of us, and you don't have bosses that take care of those people, that give them the needed resources personally and professionally to succeed, how can you ever expect them to put the mission first and put the citizen first? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really strong. <clears throat> and, and I feel like you kind of highlighted there that, that absolutely that is the, those are the priorities, the mission, uh, and, and we come at the bottom of that. But that, that doesn't mean – that we don't come into play anyway. Like we, we do have to be investing in ourselves. We do have to be looking out for each other. Um, it's just that, you know, the mission mission does come before that. Uh, I think, I think sometimes we forget that like the mission, them, us, like, like us is still important. It's not as important, but, but like we gotta be feeding into one another and mentoring one another. Uh, that's, that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. It's like a piece of a puzzle, right? So, I mean, literally, I mean, it's you, someone could debate which one's more important, but they're not really because if you miss one link of that, then it's going to completely devalue the other two links, you know. And I, I think in leadership in the fire service, it's getting a lot better. Uh, you got guys like Scott Thompson and a handful of these other chiefs leading the way and sharing. I think it's great, uh, but that's the biggest nugget that I think we're missing is the the people part of it, you know. Yeah, I do know. <laughs> uh, okay. I've got a note here, three key elements to mentoring accountability. Hit the replay button every time, encourage risk, and invite dissent. Uh, yes. there's, there's, some, uh, there's, there's a lot there. Can, can you unpack that a little bit? Well, hit the replay button is probably exactly like anybody would expect. You know, uh, 
Uh, anytime we run a, 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 a call, I don't even want to say it has to be a critical call, but a call where, you know, we can sit back and look at it and go, okay, uh, what can we do differently to get a little bit better? You know, when you got a boss that leads the way and has those conversations, and quite honestly, those conversations more often than not are over a cup of coffee or whatever the gathering point is in your firehouse. You know, for 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 uh, for me and my firehouse that I work in is the kitchen day room area, and we've had a lot of those informal discussions about hitting the replay button. I tell people it's always safe to say if we go on a call, is there something we can do slightly different to make us a little bit more efficient, a little bit quicker, and provide better service? Almost always, it's yes. What is it? We identify it, and then we actually do it. So the flip side of that is if you don't hit the replay button, don't be surprised when your guys do the same shit. You know? (laughs) You focus on the small details, it's going to transition to the big details. So, I mean, I think a lot of officers do that, and I think it's good. One of the best compliments I've gotten over the years is that guys that come to work on my shift have been told many a times that they felt like they've gotten more training sitting around drinking a cup of coffee and talking with the guys uh, than anything else. And I, I take that as a compliment. I think that's a good thing. Uh... Inviting dissent, right? That's tough because when you invite dissent, you open yourself up. You become vulnerable, right? Um, But you want to create an environment where people are going to ask you why you did what you did. And at times, they're not going to understand. They're going to think they have the answer. And that's not not a bad thing. That's called type A driven personalities and firemen. That's, That's the type of guys I want with me going down a hallway. You know, so uh, as they start asking these questions, it creates a great amount of dialogue. And you're going to find out one or two things are going to come from it, right? You know, listen, we're not perfect, man, especially for newer officers. We're going to make more mistakes than not. And that's part of it. You know, that's why they call it an experience-driven occupation, right? You know, um, you're going to find out maybe there was something that you missed or maybe there was something that you could do better, you know, and you're going to share it with your people. And what we miss when we do that is that by us sharing with our people and taking ownership, what example are we setting for our people? A really big one, I think. It's very much like just like how you handle your your children. You know, when I make a mistake at home with my boys and my daughter, you know, I own up to it. I tell them, and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to expect them to do the very same thing. You know, by opening yourself up to that, it can be tough to do. You know, but it creates a lot of dialogue. The flip side of that too is a lot of times they're going to ask you questions. You know, hey, why do we stretch the rear? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? You know, and that's an opportunity for us to provide mentoring and to share with them what we're thinking, why we made the decision that we made. Because a lot of times, you know, firefighters just don't quite see it that way simply because they're task oriented. They're worried about stretching the line, bleeding the line off and all that. Where we're thinking of a broader picture. We're thinking two and three steps ahead. So it's a great training opportunity when you start talking about inviting dissent. And you want to create that. You want to create that open dialogue where people are comfortable talking to you. That ties directly into building trust, right? And it ties directly into your job expertise, you know? So it really ties into two out of your three uh, conditions of influence. Um, Taking risk was the third one. And people sometimes misinterpret that. Uh, Taking risk is training your people to be prepared to make a decision when you're not there. So I tell people all the time, say, if I ever have anybody tell me, well, that's just simply not going to happen because, you know, I'm going to make the decisions. Well, all I can tell you is, A, you haven't been on the job long enough, or B, you don't go to fires. Because there are times when firemen are going to have to make decisions without an officer supervising them. It just happens. Set your people up for success. Start talking to them about these situations that are very predictable they're going to be in and start training them to make the decisions. I tell people all the time, listen, I want you to make a decision. If somebody isn't there, you have to make a decision, but don't make an arbitrary decision. It has to be a decision on a thought process. So if you come back and say, hey, Sham, this is why I made a decision for A, B, and C, even if it wasn't the best decision, 
it's good. It's thought provoking. You're on the right track. We're going to mentor. We're going to talk about it. We're going to kind of fix it and make it even better. But don't just make a decision. Well, I just that's what I thought we should do because it's what we always do. It's not a good answer. I share with uh, everybody in the class nuggets from the right seat, a specific call, a VES rescue that we had in 2015 in an apartment fire um, where I had two guys doing a VES. Uh, collectively, both of them had six years on the job. We were in a very unique situation. It's not often we run that low uh, experience level, but we did. But we also spent probably a good 12 months training these two young kids up to make decisions. To make a long story short, they made a decision that saved a woman's life. And she is walking the face of the earth today because they made a decision without an officer giving them direction. So I think it's really important, you know, and I call it encouraging risk. I, I call it, uh, you know, teaching them how to make those decisions when you're not going to be there, right? We do it with our kids, don't we? We raise children. Absolutely. We, we tell them all the time to make decisions, make the right decisions, and we give them the parameters and we teach them and everything else. It's the same thing with firefighters. We're doing the same exact thing. It's just, a lot of times our stakes are a little bit higher when we're training these firefighters. Yeah, like potentially. Um, but I love the, the connection you make between raising a family and, and being being an officer um, because I'm not always going to be there to make decisions for my kids. And some of those decisions may have you know really long-lasting consequences. So, yeah, I feel very much the same way. Uh, the great leaders that I've, I've worked for have, have done those things. Invited dissent, I mean – I've learned so much from from questions that I've asked where I where I thought the company officer was wrong, and then turns out he it just gave him the opportunity because it was a safe way to have a conversation, and it wasn't he wasn't threatened or defensive. Uh, I, I got to learn, you know, this this incredible piece of information that was in this guy's mind that I had that I that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. Um, just exactly. super important. Oh gosh, I, I really. I'm excited to ask you this question uh, from your class, and and I think you the way you you posed it was: Do you really want to reduce line of duty deaths? And if so, you will do X. What is it that we can really do if we want to reduce line of duty deaths? Yeah, man, I don't even know if I could rephrase it the way I did because that was I just flowed that day, probably because of that stage and everything. But the gist of it was: Is it I'll just say it. I'll be I'll be blunt. It pisses me off in the American Fire Service when we have all these initiatives to reduce line of duty deaths. And don't please, I don't want anybody taking this the wrong way. I completely believe in them. But it's not rocket science. You know, when the chiefs and the leaders of the American Fire Service decide to value accountability over loyalty and start making training the highest priority in the fire department, that's when we're going to start seeing some type of significant impact. It should piss every fireman off. And, and this country, when they start looking at statistically why we are dying, it is predictable and it is happening every damn year. And it pisses me off the more I think about it. And when you look at the core of it, you're hard pressed to find a fire department that has a culture where training is first. We say it is. We talk that game. But the simple fact is, is that most of them don't. You know, and if we ever get to that point, and I've had this these same, I want to say, you know, uh, debates with fire chiefs. Um, you know, and, and, and there's always a reason why, you know, and I get that and I, I can't say I completely understand it because I'm not going to pretend I do because I'm not a fire chief. I don't deal with the things that they do. But what I do know for a fact is that training saves lives and training makes us safer. So we're in this American fire service where we're debating the aggressiveness. I don't want to say it's stupid, but it kind of is because you want to. <laughs> You want to make it safer, you train more, right? I mean, mm -hmm. literally, 
that's for me in my career. I do things. I'll do things. I'll, I'll, I'll take a lot more risk now than I did 15 years ago. And you want to know why? Because I'm, I'm better trained. I've been oh, to wow. you know, I mean, It's safer for me now than it was 15 years ago, honestly. You know? So, yeah, man, we, we got to value the, the American Fire Service has to value accountability a little bit more. Loyalty is one of the best things about the, the American Fire Service, but it's a double edged sword, too, because a lot of times it allows. Uh, it allows behavior that shouldn't exist. It allows performances that shouldn't exist, you know, and that's a tough thing as a boss. You get to a certain point in your career where you have to pull that line back on accountability a little closer. I can tell you when you make a boss as a company officer, you get to the battalion level and then you're going to this new level where I'm going as an operations chief. You absolutely have to value accountability because if you don't, it may cost somebody their lives one day. That's so strong. That's blowing my mind. I love it. I. Uh, you just touched on moving up the ranks in in the fire department and and the way that accountability is, is so important. There's a note here on Andrew's notes that says your unofficial accountability decreases every rank you go up. Now I think I missed this part of the talk. So can you can you talk to me about what that means? Your unofficial accountability. Yeah, you know, and I. And I <laughs> I put that in a, I put that in this particular class probably two years ago um, mm -hmm. because the longer I'm in the fire service, the more I kind of see it. So I'll kind of lay it out for you like I do in the class. Like if you have a new firefighter coming on, we run a staffing of four where I work, right? So you have a new firefighter coming on. He's got a jump seat firefighter next to him. Typically going to be somebody of seniority. You know, sometimes as low as three or four years, more commonly a little, a little more. But the point being is that's his first check of accountability, his unofficial accountability, really. If he does something wrong, more often than not, the firefighter is going to say, hey, man, come here. Let me show you how to do this. Or, hey, we can't do that. Or, hey, that's a no-go. This is what we should do. The next level up is probably going to be the senior guy in my department. A lot of times it's the engineer. It's, the, it's, a, it's a ranking position above firemen that drives. That's your next point. They're going to be very quick to keep a person in line. Then if your official line of accountability is going to be your lieutenant or your captain, whatever your company officer rank is, right? So you kind of have like three levels, to be quite honestly. When you move to the right seat, you know, whether it's a captain or lieutenant, where's your level of accountability there? It's typically going to be direct rank above you, which is going to be battalion or district. Well, what mm -hmm. if they don't work at the same station? Where is it at? Then at that point, it becomes even that much more important to build that people, that group around you, your company, that are willing to tell you things that you don't want to hear but you need to hear. So as you move up, your accountability is going to lessen because you immediately only have one guy that's officially accountable. You move up to battalion or district chief, where is the next level of accountability from there? In my, in my organization, it's the deputy chief. Mm -hmm. uh, but he doesn't work shift work. We don't see him. And in fact, in my department, it's been vacant for eight years now. Just this year, the city has finally decided to refill it again. So where's my level of accountability? I could get away with all kinds of crazy stuff, to be honest with you, if I didn't have certain value system and and you know believe in doing the right thing i could very easily get it so the so basically the takeaway i tell people all the time is as you move up how are you going to create that self accountability got it if you don't if you don't surround yourself with the right people a lot of times you're not even going to know when you're bending especially if you're going through a tough time in life where you know uh, you're not you're not making the best decisions and that and that happens that's life it happens to all of us so that's kind of where I was going with you. As you go up, your your official your unofficial accountability lessons, which I think is that much more important to have self accountability. Excellent. That kind of wraps up my notes. So one of the things I, as I was reading through this, what do you see as like the common pitfalls for for guys and gals like who who are first becoming company officers? What are the biggest mistakes they make? Um, and maybe you know, let's identify those so that so then 
those folks who are going to go into those roles maybe can cannot make them in the future. But you said firefighters are predictable. So what are some of the like really predictable failure points you see in new officers? Well, the first and foremost is probably the people skills. And I know people are probably thinking this, you know, operationally should throw something out there, which which I will, but people skills right off the bat. I mean, people skills are, are very subjective. You know, a lot of operational-based stuff and procedure stuff is very objective, which means a lot of it's process-based. It makes it a little bit easier. People are a little bit more difficult, you know. Um, I, I've had uh, several promoted captains in my battalion the last uh, couple of years, and, and one of the things I tell them, and they almost always come back and tell me they appreciate it, is I sit them down and I say, listen, man, you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to make a lot of them. And I want you to know it's okay because every officer goes through that. But we're going to learn, we're going to take ownership, and we're going to fix them, you know. Um, and a lot of it is operational-based, you know. Um, so I guess to sum up the question, one is is leadership, you know, um, and not reinventing the wheel. Like it blows me away that, that nobody, A, reaches out to anybody, or B, mm-hmm. tries to figure it out on their own. Like go find somebody who's already been down that path before and find out what they did. It's, it's cut from the same mold most of the time. Either A, you're going to find out the right answer or you're going to find out something really, really close uh, to give you some direction. Operationally, you know, um, you're just going to make mistakes. I mean, I don't know how else to put it, to be honest with you, because, you know, I, I got promoted early, but I spent 10 years working with some really good people. You know, and I, and I felt like I was pretty squared away operationally. And I realized quickly that when you're put in that right seat and you don't have somebody to fall back on to ask questions and you have to take sole responsibility, the job becomes a lot difficult, which makes it that much more important that we get out and we find a mentor, we tag to them, or we get out outside of our bubble and we go to classes and conferences. I tell people all the time because they ask me, they say, well, how do I, let me ask you a question. How do I get better? You know, I mean, we're not going to fires every day. I said, well, welcome to the American Fire Service. I mean, that's what most of us, but the one single thing that I found, in my opinion, that closes the gap on experience, it doesn't replace it, but it closes it, is going to hands-on conferences. Going to those that have credibility, that's been there and done that, attaching yourselves to them and learning from them. And then hopefully you create some friendships over the years, and then before you know it, you're quickly learning what you what you don't even know. You don't know what you don't know until you don't know you don't know. Until you get outside that bubble. That's right. Know, Start experiencing it as an example here in the state of Florida. When I went through in 1989, they were teaching us a 30 degree uh, fog pattern interior firefighting. I spent five or six years going to fires where it was extremely hot, steam burns. But you know what? I just was told, I thought that was a part of the business. That's what I was told. Guess how I figured out that we were doing it wrong? Yeah, hot conferences. Went to a conference and they started sharing it. And I'm like, holy cow, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. And that the entire state of Florida was doing it wrong, you know, and teaching it wrong. It's just crazy, you know? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, you know, there, there's always going to be some of that um, as we continue to, to come up with new things in the fire service. But uh, I agree. I've watched uh, some of the best uh, backseat firefighters I know have, have just really accelerated their career growth because they've spent so much time in classes and conferences. Yeah, absolutely. That wraps it up for me in terms of asking about nuggets from the right seat. Thank you for being so generous to share uh, so much from from your class. Is there is there anything that I didn't hit that, that you want to make sure you get out there? You know, the only thing I can think of that I'm asked about a lot, you know, is that I did it. In, I did it in Portland, um, and it's very important to me as I tell guys all the time and gals, you know, to size yourself up, you know, by your children's standards. You know, we we hear it and say it a lot, but you know. The question, you know, that I, I propose to anybody who is struggling or challenging on how well they should be prepared 
is that if you knew you were going to get your own kid or you you knew you were going to get the one person in your life that if, that like if you got a phone call right now, man, and they said that, you know, that he or she was gone, you know, your life would crumble and you don't know how you would take your next breath. If you knew for a fact you were going to get that person, in, you know, in the next 30 minutes or whatever, what would you do? How would your perspective on the job change? How would your preparation on the job change? You know, everything from presetting your equipment to knowing balance points on ladders to everything. How important does it become at that point to you? You know, so I tell people all the time, size yourself up by your children's standards. Share that with your people. It ties directly into our mission. It, it ties directly into the very purpose of why we exist in the first place as firemen, in my opinion, at least, is to have that opportunity uh, to to make a difference. And for me, you know what? I mean, it, it sounds kind of morbid, but I'm OK. I'm not OK. That's the wrong way to put it. I deal with it better when people die and we've done everything that we could to the best of our ability. I can sleep better at night. I cannot sleep well at night. And it's happened to probably just about every fireman out there that's been on the job for any length of time. When you look back and you say, you know what? We could have done better. And we should have done better. It's and somebody, somebody's dead today because of it. And we don't like talking about it. But it's the simple fact. So when you put your family, your loved ones in that position, for me, if you were to ask anybody that I've worked with over the years, and you mentioned children's standards, they're just going to shake their head. They're like, yep, we get it. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, because that's what it's really about, you know. I, and I want those guys and gals to be prepared. So one day when they come, to, God forbid, they have to rescue, you know, my three kids, Caleb, Jordan, and Michaela, you know, the chances of them surviving are much greater. So, yeah, that's probably about it. The children's standards, I think it's a big deal. You know, it's certainly a way that I've lived my career and, and, and will be until the day that I retire. I love that. I also have three kids and, and I'm their their standards uh for me are probably higher you know if anyone who's who's a, a parent can can kind of relate to that uh, especially when they're a little younger you know they they think you're superman um and, and the reality is we're not but uh you know trying to trying to live up to that standard every day you know we just continue to grow i love what you said about you know being better being safer 15 years later you know just because of your training and and it's i mean really if if i had 30 minutes you know, I would be maniacal. I would be an insane person making sure that everything was, was perfect and that I was perfect. Um, I, I love that idea. Okay, uh, so I want to ask you just a couple more questions. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, we've been on for close to an hour now, but i just got a couple more questions I'd like to ask you, some of the standard refined by fire questions. Uh, Chief, if you could have every firefighter in America read one thing, whether that's a book, an article, or a blog post, what would it be? Man, I, you know, I, I thought about that. I don't, I don't know because there's, you know, uh, I'm not a big reading person, but I have read a lot of books, you know, uh, in the fire service. Um, you know, I can tell you one, one, uh, one document that's uh, standard reading material for our probationary firefighters when they come in is, you know, Andrew Frederick's writings. You know, um, we we believe wholeheartedly in that, and and we're a big engine company fire department because we work in suburban America and. That's predominantly what we do, and, and I like to think we're, we're pretty darn good at it, and it revolves a lot around that. So that's, you know, that would probably be on the top of my list. Um, I love know, there's a lot of leadership. I read a lot more leadership books now than I, than I did when I was younger, obviously, you know. I mean, there's a tons of them. Extreme Ownership by Jocko is pretty amazing. The Mentor Leader by Tony Dungy. You know, Scott Thompson's The Functional Fire Company. Dude, best book I've read hands down in a long time. I mean, he takes – the very philosophy that we're talking about a lot, what we're talking about today, and he puts it in a way 
that you can actually use it from a, a management leadership perspective. So I don't know, man. That's a tough, that's not a good, I don't have a good answer for you because there's just so many of them out there. But th- those are probably a few of my top ones. Oh, that's great. That's five good answers. <laughs> I, I do like that. And, and of course, um, at different levels uh, of your career, there's, there's maybe different things that are more important to read. Uh, we did just give uh, a group of recruits that graduated the academy that same thing. We gave Mandarin Frederick's writings. Um, but I do think leadership and even something that's important to me is, is educating ahead of yourself. So, so not promoting to officer and then reading leadership books but educating ahead of yourself and getting some ideas about leadership and some education and leadership before you take that, take that next step. Absolutely. Uh, Chief, what actionable advice would you give the firefighter with an officer who refuses to train or only begrudgingly allows training? Yeah, that's tough, man. I mean, that's obviously a a topic that comes up a lot, you know, Um, and I've been asked that specifically more times than I can count. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first and foremost, I tell people all the time, um, if you are only receiving the training that your department provides, you're missing the boat. Like that's like the bare minimum. Even if you work at a really good department that trains a lot, you know, first and foremost, get outside your bubble, go to conferences, attach yourself with people that do that. Secondly, you know, it, I don't know if there's a right answer when you work with an officer like that. Um, unfortunately, more often than not, it seems to be in my experiences of those that have been faced with those challenges, me being one of them as, as a young fireman, is that sometimes you just got to find a way to get away from them. And sometimes you got to do the uncomfortable thing and request a transfer, whether it happens or not. And a lot of times guys don't want to do that because of the fact that they still have to work and live with those individuals, especially if you work in a smaller department like mine, where you're going to know everybody in the fire department, you know? I also have seen guys a lot of times they're able to get their officers motivated when they start exposing them to things um, that they either a forgotten about or they haven't been exposed to. I tell guys all the time, I said, you remember how exciting it was when you went to rookie school? And they're like, yeah. I said, you remember how exciting it was when you went to your first fire and you looked over your shoulder and you could see a, a column of smoke? Yeah, you know. You know, and I said, well, that's the type of motivation that we got to capture, you know, and by going to conferences where you have you get two really good things, you get the educational portion of it and you get the social aspect out of it. Both of those tend to be motivating. So if you can take your officer, if you can convince them maybe to go to something like that, that motivates you, that might be an avenue to get them a little bit more motivated. More often than not, I mean, I hate to say it, and I'm not a negative or pessimistic guy, but it seems to be more often than not, they just have to find their way away from those officers and gravitate towards the good officers. Not, yeah. a good answer, not a good answer, just kind of what I've experienced throughout my career. You know? I think it's pragmatic. I think, I think it's realistic. Yeah. Okay, the last thing I'd like to do, if, if you're down, I'd like to ask you to, to play the Refined by Fire Fantasy Firefighter draft game. I think it's a fun way to highlight – uh, those people who've been really important in our careers are those people who we really appreciate. Um, so if you would be so kind, uh, if you were to, to ride an engine, and you can put as many people on this engine as you like, but if you were going to ride an engine with a, a handful of other firefighters, uh, who would you have sitting uh, in each seat and why? Yeah, wait a minute. I don't even know, bro. <laughs> there, are so, there are so many good guys out there, you know, uh, I could tell you a few that come to mind right away. You know, Mike Lombardo, Chief Lombardo, man, that guy's just amazing. I've gotten to know him over the years. 
there isn't a time that I don't get something out every time I talk to that guy, you know, and he's got so much experience, you know, you got guys like, you know, Timmy Klett, you know, I mean, a lot of really credible guys say he's one of the best engine company guys, you know, around ever, yeah. you know, I'd love to like tag on him and, and, you know, and, and learn more from him. Um, I think I learned, I, I got to learn from Tim at fire department training network. I think, he, and he was only there for a day. I think I learned, I've never learned so much from a person in a single day. I'll say that. He taught me, I've never had so, someone able to teach me so much in, in eight hours. It was fantastic. Yeah, I can I can believe it. I, I can totally believe it with him. And you got Jim McCormick, man, another just a, an amazing dude I love to tag along with, you know. Uh, you know, truck stuff, Mike Champo, one of the best dudes I think I've ever met in my life and just an amazing, experienced guy. You know, I'd say Kurt Isaacson, but I get to go to fires with him, so I'm just going <laughs> to fires with that guy. Uh, but uh, Steve Robertson, another guy out of Columbus, Ohio, man. Steve is, is hands down one of the best uh, engine guys uh, I have ever learned from. I mean, it doesn't take five minutes of talking to that guy, and he's just amazing uh, experience and the way he communicates. Um, you know, Bill Gustin. Who wouldn't want to work with Bill Gustin? Mm -hmm. I, I've met Bill over the years. I don't know him well. You know, uh, but golly, to sit and, and to pick that guy's brain. And then, you know, I don't know. The list goes on and on. Upper level guys like Dave McGrill. I mean, just an amazing, golly, Brian Brush. Jeez, it just goes on, man. Uh, I'd, I'd have a I'd have a big-ass engine, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you, you might need a battalion. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd need a couple of them, you yeah. know, right? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I guess, gosh, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to answer one of the questions. One of the questions is, is there a value to social media and the fire service? And I think that's the value that it's given us an opportunity for all of the, for all of the bad that it brings. The good that it brings is given us that opportunity to connect with, with men and women across the country who are just crushing it and have so much to share. And I feel like we kind of live in a little bit of a golden age and being able to, to share information so freely. Yeah, man, I would I would agree. I mean, look, I mean, we're you and I are communicating on two different parts of the country. You know, I mean, it's uh, social media. I think is good. I think it's kind of a double edged sword. You know, I think you there are some amazing uh, training sites on social media. I also think there's some really ones that aren't that good. And mm -hmm. if you're a young firefighter and you don't have somebody kind of helping you navigate that, you could easily get wrong information that's going to mislead you. So I would say that's the downside to it. But if you know which ones to go to, you can attach yourself to somebody like you or anybody else that knows the job. You, you, you can't get uh, the information 20 years ago that you can get today. Like with a, with a flip of the thing, you can just – you can get videos, credible people, you know, scientific data. We didn't have scientific data when I came in in 1989. You know, our scientific data was the, the senior guys telling us, you know, what to expect and what to do, which coincidentally has lined up with probably 95 percent of what the scientific data is telling us. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing. I, th I think it's a good thing as long as it's, uh, you know, help kind of drive the new guy along uh, and stay the hell away from negative stuff on social media. Everybody's a keyboard expert. You want to reach through the, the screen sometime. I don't even engage, man. I don't. I, I did it first, you know, a couple years ago. <laughs> yes. It, 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 was, it was toxic and mentally draining. I just literally click right by it now, you know, so – it, it is um, kind of unfortunately because I think guys like like you and I we like to exchange information and ideas and, and maybe even a healthy debate, but um, there's no such thing as a healthy debate on social media. 
No, no, because 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 nine times out of ten they wouldn't they wouldn't have that conversation in your face to your yeah. face. Yeah, that's right. So, but but you know the keyboard gives us an opportunity to do it. I I just avoid it in, anymore. It doesn't even bother me because I don't look at it. You know, so yeah. excellent. Well, Chief, that about wraps it up for me. Um, <clears throat> where can where can guys find you? Where are you going to be teaching at in the next uh, handful of months or the next year? Um. Well, you know, I'm probably my teaching is probably going to scale back quite a bit. Oh, sure. But he's yeah. going to change with a new job. But I'm supposed to be out of Portland again this year. I'm I'm uh, excited and hopefully, uh, you know, fingers crossed, it'll, I'll be able to still get out there with my new job. The chief that I'm going to work for is uh, super supportive. You know, not not just in that aspect, but he understands that it's important that I stay engaged in all this because this is what he wants. He wants that operations driven like that. So, you know, Portland, I'll be at FDIC this year also. Um, I'm doing a unique class, which I'll just go ahead and pitch it since you mentioned it. I'm doing a class with my, with my brother, actually, and we did it for the first time earlier this year at Water on the Fire Conference, and it's called the Anatomy of a Rescue. So we have two uh, rescues, um, VES rescues, that were caught on video. One of them was mine in an apartment fire. Uh, another one was my brother's where he was a captain on a rig. Uh, it actually made ABC News. It was got a lot of publicity, but... Uh, um, but it's a pretty heavy video uh, showing them making a rescue of a lady in a vacant building, a vacant boarded up building. Both of them survived, but we pitched this class and we, and we spent a large time talking about the culture leading up to it. Not the days, the weeks, months, but the years of developing a culture and preparedness for these guys that set them up for success today, which allows somebody to get a second chance in life. So we're having this class at FDIC. I believe we're teaching it on Wednesday at 1030 uh, called The Anatomy of a Rescue. Um, at, I feel pretty confident saying that if anybody comes to it, I think they're going to like it. It's just, it's good stuff. Um, so we'll be there and then I'll be with the engine group, um, with, uh, Steve Robertson group, the, uh, stretching for success for the hot class. And then, uh, after that, um, I'm not really sure because I take over a new job and I'm, uh, I'm hoping to get out three or four times a year, but certainly in the first year, I probably won't be out a whole lot because of my new responsibilities. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Shannon, really appreciate you sharing with us, taking the time, uh, really breaking down um, nuggets from the right seat, and uh, that class, Anatomy of a Rescue, that, that sounds amazing. So I guess I get to put uh, like class number 212 on my list of, of classes I need to take. Um, but all, all the best to you in your new, in your new position. Um, I think it's so important. Uh, a, a guy who we both know who's, who's, who's close to my heart said to me recently, some of us have to get over the wall in that some of, some of the really engaged and passionate firefighters, they've got to go over there and take that gold badge and put on the three, four, or five bugles um, to, really, to really make a difference in their fire department. So uh, I appreciate that you're doing that and uh, wish you all the best success. Well, I appreciate it, man. You guys are doing awesome things. And I, I, I really sincerely appreciate you uh, having me on, you know, just some small city uh, guy from the panhandle of Florida. Um, I think it's super cool, uh, you know, and you guys keep doing great things, man. I follow you and a lot of guys here in the panhandle follow you guys and, and uh, you know, gives us motivation to keep pushing. So, man, thank you for what you do. Absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll do our best. to this month's episode of Refined by Fire. Hit us up on our Facebook page and let me know what you like. Let me know what you think we can do better. 
and let me know who you'd like to hear from in the future. Also, please be sure to check out Elkhart Brass. They're supporting us, so please support them. Elkhart Brass is a division of Safefleet. Safefleet owns a bunch of different brands like Elkhart Brass, like FRC, Foam Pro, and ROM. A bunch of companies that can help you out if you're specking an apparatus. They might have some stuff that you're interested in. LED lighting, flow meters, roll-up doors, etc. So if you're in the market specking a new apparatus, uh, make sure you check out what Safely can do. Yeah.